0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, the Brevard Theatrical Ensemble presents the ninth new version of their original production, Mosquitoes, Alligators, and Determination.
1: We're a storytelling group, and we do themed shows. And somebody said, we live here in Florida. It's a great place, but there's all this history that people don't know about.
0: We'll discuss documents from Fort Dade written during the Second Seminole War. These aren't the soldiers'
2: letters, they aren't the journals from officers that we commonly look to, or historians rather, look
0: at when we're examining conflict and war. And we'll revisit the Space Shuttle Challenger disaster. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers.
3: I have stood at the center of a hurricane. Imagine standing at the center of a Roman Colosseum that is 20 miles wide with walls that soar 10 miles into the sky, towering walls, with cascades of ice crystals falling along its brilliantly white surface. That is what it is like to stand in the eye of a hurricane. The hurricane's truth is not revealed at once. You think you are seeing it. Within an hour after, the wind starts, but your experience of the winds has just begun. Then the water joins in after hours of darkness. Deafening silence begins only to be followed by winds and rain, more powerful coming from the opposite direction.
0: Each year, the Brevard Theatrical Ensemble presents a new production of Mosquitoes, Alligators, and Determination, looking at different aspects of Florida history and culture. The ninth, all-new version of the program is being presented at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa with six performances during the first two weekends in August. Tickets are available online at myfloridahistory.org. Mike Mellon has been with the Brevard Theatrical Ensemble for 20 years and has performed in all nine productions of Mosquitoes, Alligators, and Determination.
1: We're a storytelling group, and we do themed shows. And somebody said, we live here in Florida. It's a great place, but there's all this history that people don't know about.
0: Past productions of mosquitoes, alligators, and determination have focused on cracker culture, explorers, and discoveries, and our state's natural environment, among other topics.
1: This year, we're doing disasters because a lot of Florida's history has been shaped. Hurricanes, the obvious one, but there's been fires, there's been famine, there's been uh, plagues that have shaped Florida's history. So it's the disasters and how we recover from them.
0: Mike Mellon's portion of the program looks at two hurricanes, one that devastated the Luna settlement in 1559 and another that sunk a fleet of 12 Spanish ships full of treasure in the 1700s. Lizzie Seal has been a member of the Brevard Theatrical Ensemble for 14 years and has also performed in Mosquitoes, Alligators, and Determination from the beginning.
3: From the beginning of when I was, uh, was told I was going to be doing this story, it sort of evolved to where I'm actually sort of personifying uh, Guabance, who was the Taino goddess, also known as she whose wrath and fury destroys everything. It was The Tainos believed that it was her that brought about the hurricanes. Hurricanes were merely a phenomenon created by her. The Mayans, they believed that Huracan was an actual creator god, but the Tainos thought that that was something brought about by their goddess.
0: Doris Gonzalez has performed with the Brevard Theatrical Ensemble since 1998. In the past, she has portrayed Ruth Bryan Owens, daughter of William Jennings Bryan and the first female senator from Florida, among other roles. Gonzalez says that the goal is to make Florida history accessible to a wide audience.
4: Well, there's so much to Florida history, as we're all finding out. Um, I'm a transplant, so um, doing all this has put me more aware of where Florida has been and where it's going. And, um, and it's really kind of fun to go in. And she'll give us a story, probably out of a chapter, out of a book. And then we'll all go out and start getting on the internet, going through the libraries, and start, try to find some of the story behind the story so that we can make it a little bit more personal, so that when we tell the story, it's not just a history lesson. And it's fun, and as it should be. You know, which we never, you know, I remember my history lessons as kids were pretty dry. Uh, And I think we try to give it an approach where, you know, you're entertained, but you're also learning something, but you're not being force-fed.
0: For the new production of Mosquitoes, Alligators, and Determination, Gonzalez is telling the story of Dr. John Perry Wall, mayor of Tampa, and the first American doctor to make the connection between yellow fever and mosquitoes. When his wife and daughter died from an outbreak of the disease in 1871, Wall was motivated to find the cause.
4: He started putting, you know, observations together and he finally realized that the normal old little treetop mosquito was the one that brought disease because yellow fever and mosquitoes were there in the summer and when the first frost came they were gone but nobody believed him; they thought his theory was just bunk um, until uh, Dr. Walter Reed with the backing of the army in 1900 then finally put everything together and he gets the credit for having you know solved the mystery but you know dr wall actually got there first some 30 years earlier
0: each production of mosquitoes alligators and determination has important messages relevant to contemporary floridians the ninth production of the program celebrates how overcoming disasters makes us stronger
2: i have seen tempests when the scolding winds have rived the naughty oaks And I have
5: seen the ambitious ocean swell and rage and foam to be exalted with the threatening clouds. But never till tonight, never till now, did I go through a tempest dropping fire. Either there is a civil strife in heaven, or else the world too saucy with the gods incenses them to send destruction.
0: Travis O'Beer has been with the Brevard Theatrical Ensemble since 2009. This year, he's doing a story about the Jacksonville Fire of 1901.
2: The main theme of this story is like basically what happens in today's world. We have a lot of tragedies going on, but we don't let the tragedies overcome us. We rebuild, we regroup, and that's why I think the human nature It's not lacking anymore. I think as time goes by, it'll get even stronger, and our resolves will go stronger, and really I think that's what's going to make the world a better
0: place. Lady Gail Ryan is founder and director of the Brevard Theatrical Ensemble and the driving force behind mosquitoes, alligators, and determination. Ryan was born in 1929, so she did not witness the hurricane of 1926. The storm became part of her family lore, though, and influenced the theme of this year's production.
6: The history of Florida has been shaped by these disasters. The hurricane. I've been through quite a few hurricanes. I did not go through the 1926 hurricane, um, but my family did. And they talked about it, but I really didn't realize what it would look like 10 feet of water to come flooding in and floating by. I brought this evening a chair that my mother saved from the hurricane that was floating down the road. And Miami was crushed. Um, all the houses were blown. It taken two years to put the things up. And so that's one of the things that I wanted to find out more about that 1926 hurricane. Then discovered that it went on up to Okeechobee and, and how hurricanes work. And I became so fascinated in this, I could not let it down.
0: A native Floridian, Lady Gail Ryan hopes that the Mosquitoes, Alligators, and Determination program will help audience members feel more connected to our state.
6: We're responsible for our environment. We're responsible for what we do and what we do to Florida. And right now we're in big problems and uh, and that's part of our program at the end. What are you doing? Because this land is your land as well as my land. What are we doing to clear those beaches? What are we doing to be an active part of this community, not sit in their side in their condition, but be an active part of supporting Florida and its environment.
0: The Brevard Theatrical Ensemble is performing the ninth all-new production of Mosquitoes, Alligators, and Determination at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Tickets are available online at myfloridahistory.org. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land And this land is my land From California To the New York Island From Redwood Forest To the Gulf Stream waters This land was made for you and me When the sun comes shining And I was strolling And the wheat fields waving And the dust clouds rolling and the voice coming chanting Always lifting, this land was made for you and me. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, watch archived episodes of our television series, Florida Frontiers, find great books on Florida history and culture, and much more. You can also visit MyFloridaHistory.org to make a reservation for the Florida Historical Society Annual Meeting and Symposium to be held aboard the Carnival Sensation May 18 twenty second, 2017. The ship leaves from Miami, spending a full day in Key West, visiting historic sites such as the Harry S. Truman Little White House and the Ernest Hemingway House. From there, we'll go to Cozumel to visit the spectacular ancient Mayan city of Tulum. The theme for this conference cruise is Islands in the Stream, Exploring History and Archaeology in Key West and Cozumel. In addition to the exciting excursions, the event features paper presentations and roundtable discussions on board ship. One of the featured speakers will be Robert Kirstein, award-winning author of the book Key West on the Edge, Inventing the Conch Republic. Also featured will be Sandra Starr, senior researcher emerita from the Smithsonian Institution, presenting the paper, Maya Mariners, the Yucatan and Florida, a researcher's tale of seduction into the cross-gulf travel theory. You don't want to miss this exciting Florida Historical Society annual meeting and symposium aboard the Carnival Sensation. Cabins are going quickly. Visit myfloridahistory.org for more information. This is Florida Frontiers. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, the Second Seminole War played an important role in Florida history.
2: Yeah, that's right. And the Second Seminole War was actually the longest and costliest Indian conflict in U.S. history lasted for seven years from 1835 to 1842, and cost around $30 million for the entire conflict. Now, to put that in perspective, the entire federal budget for one year was around that amount of money, so it was extremely costly for the U.S. government. Nowadays, it's hard to imagine, but there were enormous resources of men and material expended on this single conflict. Now, the second settlement of war was actually a smaller conflict within the larger Indian Removal Act, or the Indian Removal process, from the the early 1830s. And that is, uh, of course, spearheaded by Andrew Jackson, who was involved in the first Seminole War when he was still a general long before he became president. He invaded sovereign Spanish West Florida uh, and destroyed a few forts and destroyed a few Seminole villages. So hostilities leading up to 1835, the beginning of the second Seminole War between the U.S. government and the Seminole and Miccosukee Indians in Florida uh, had really been heating up. Now, there were a number of instances of violence. There were retaliatory murders and horse stealing on both sides, uh, And there were actually a series of negotiations and, and treaties that were enacted during that same time period. Uh, and just as soon as the ink dried on many of these treaties, they were ignored by both sides. So in 1835, in December of 1835, we had what was known as the Dade Massacre, which occurred in, uh, in north central Florida. There was a column of about 100 troops led by uh, Major Francis Dade, uh, and they were ambushed by a group of Seminole Indians. Almost the entire command was killed on that side. It became known as the Dade Massacre. Three survived to tell the story. And it was along this road, known as Fort King Road, between Fort Brook, which was in present-day Tampa, uh, actually right in downtown Tampa, and Fort King near present-day Ocala. And it was a supply route that Major Dade was moving along in, in December uh, when they were ambushed. And that incited international and national attention focused on the very backcountry territory of Florida in 1835. And this began what would become the longest Indian conflict in U.S.
0: history. And you have here some documents written at one of the forts established in Florida during the Second Seminole War.
2: That's right. What we're looking at is uh, approximately 100 documents from Fort Dade. And Fort Dade was named after Major Dade, who I just spoke about, was killed with his entire command in 1835. Uh, Now, these documents are all invoices and receipts. So uh, these aren't the soldiers' letters, they aren't the journals from officers that we commonly look to, or historians rather, look at when we're examining conflict and war, especially the Second Seminal War. Uh, This examines a different aspect or a different component of what it takes to command a large standing army in the field. We're talking about logistics. It is incredibly difficult to keep, especially in the, in the mid-19th century, to keep thousands of troops both fed and full of ammunition, horses, and supplies. Uh, and this is really a testament to that. So one of the first documents I want to point out here, this is a ledger sheet, and it covers from the beginning of January 1838 to the end of the month, January of 1838. And you can see here we have these very neat columns. It gives a date and if we look at each column we can see what is being rationed out to the number of soldiers. Now at this time Fort Dade was kind of a central command. Fort Dade was located in what is now present-day Pasco County right on the Withlacoochee River and it was of strategic importance because the fort was protecting a bridge that crossed over the Withlacoochee River. So the US Army really wanted to hold on to this territory. They did not want it to fall into Seminole hands because it was right along that Fort King Road. So in order to supply the rest of the troops throughout the Peno- they needed to maintain this post. So it was garrisoned usually with at least 100 troops, sometimes a few hundred troops at one time. And in January, it looks like right in the, about the middle of the month, they had almost 400 troops that were stationed at this site. So if you think about that, you have 400 troops and officers that need to be fed at least twice a day. And that's evidenced by the amount of supplies that were being used. If we look here just at beef, again, this is one month, they consumed 2,269 pounds of beef, right? And that's the bare minimum, feeding the soldiers really with what they couldn't forage from the surrounding area. If we go down the list, we have flour, beans, uh, candles, soap, salt, vinegar, onion, sugar, and then we have something stranger at the end, sauerkraut. <laughs> Believe it or not, uh, these troops were consuming almost 300 pounds of sauerkraut. We also have a list of what the officers were receiving, and among those supplies, we have 37 gallons of whiskey, <laughs> a necessary uh, part of the uh, of the war effort. But even more than whiskey is coffee. Uh, the soldiers were consuming over 6,000 pounds of coffee in one single month. Now, we're looking at this at this large ledger, and if you notice, it's all handwritten, uh, and it's handwritten with ink. <laughs> so they also had to have those kind of supplies. Everything you could imagine had to be brought into the backcountry. There were no settlements in this area. There was no general store. Everything was shipped in by the U.S. Army and by the volunteer regiments. Uh, on another ledger, we have almost 74 ounces of ink that was being used in, in a one-month period.
0: Now, traces of the Second Seminole War can still be found throughout Florida today.
2: That's right, Ben. Now, when I say Fort, and we talk about Fort Dade, these are not the traditional images one might think of. These aren't stone walls. These forts were temporary fortifications. They were usually just dug earthen works with maybe pine logs to help protect against any immediate attack. So there's very little tangible evidence of these forts. However, a lot of the place names still exist today. One might think of Fort Lauderdale in southeast Florida, Fort Myers, places like that that still remind us of this uh, very long-standing and important conflict that many Floridians probably passed through and rarely ever think about great well thanks Ben sure thank you
0: Ben DiBiase is director of educational resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in COCO. <laughs>
5: to me. Oh Many young men's dreams made him disabled better than me. Life is much too short and precious, it's been fighting for each day. Walking, give life, it can only take
0: it away. Oh, this is Florida Frontiers. The destruction of the Space Shuttle Challenger soon after takeoff was a tragic event in the history of space travel. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com revisits the Challenger disaster.
1: By 1986, shuttle launches were still being aired on television, but people had largely lost interest. Newscasters would cut in to regular programming 10 seconds before a launch, show it, get through the separation of the external tank, and that would be the end of the coverage. But since a teacher was on board this was national news Um, the day of the launch was actually the day that Ronald Reagan was going to be giving his State of the Union address he had already written in his speech how wonderful this particular launch was going to be and it ended up turning into a memorial speech school kids around the country were watching it live that was
2: Dr. Amy Foster author of Integrating Women into the Astronaut Corps she spoke to me about the Challenger shuttle disaster of 1986 this wasn't the first disaster that resulted in the loss of life for NASA. Dr. Foster tells me about the previous accident when astronauts died in a capsule fire in 1967.
1: This accident was a first and that it actually happened during a launch. The astronauts were not yet in space, but the previous astronaut loss of life was Apollo 1, and that was a ground test. The three astronauts were sitting in the Apollo 1 capsule just simply conducting tests, and NASA was up against a a timeline to get men on the moon by the end of the decade. And so they actually decided to combine some tests that day. They were going to pressurize the capsule. They were going to put all three astronauts in there. They were going to do some communication tests, and they were also going to do a plugs-out test, which means that the capsule was running on its own power, meaning plugs out. It's unplugged. The combination of doing all of those things together. There was power running through the electrical lines. There was a frayed wire, caused a spark. This was a pure oxygen environment. And the thing went up. Just, it was a ball of fire in a matter of seconds. But that all happened on the ground. The fact that that happened on the ground probably made it possible for us to get to the moon by 1969 because we were able to, the engineers were able to deconstruct what happened and know how to fix it.
2: Dr. Foster explains what caused the Challenger disaster.
1: You know, people often talk about it as an explosion, and it really was, uh, we could say it was an extreme case of fuel leak, massive fuel leak. What happens in that event is, first, the temperature was very cold that day, the coldest launch that NASA has ever attempted, one of the shuttles. There had been evidence with some colder launches in the past that hot gases were leaking past the O-rings that sit between the segments that make up the solid rocket booster. Those O-rings are basically within the seal between those segments, and they're designed to keep those hot gases in. The problem is those O-rings are made of rubber. And as physicist Richard Feynman so eloquently pointed out, when he was on the Challenger Disaster Commission to explore what happened, he put a rubber gasket and a glass of ice water. It's hard. It doesn't work as a seal when it gets cold. So when the shuttle launched in very cold temperatures, it was below freezing that morning, those O-rings were rock-hard and didn't work as a seal. So those hot gases leak out through the seal of one of the solid rocket boosters. And you can see that in the images. If you look at slow time-lapse, there is a flame that actually shoots out from the left-hand side of one of the solid rocket boosters.
2: Dr. Foster reflects on the legacy of the Challenger disaster.
1: I think for NASA, that's where the lessons really are most strongly felt. Of course, they had another shuttle accident in 2003 with the loss of Columbia. There were, again, questions of whether the right decisions were made at the time about whether the engineers took all of the steps that they should have to protect that crew. There had been evidence that some foam off of the external tank had hit the leading edge of the left wing, and it may have caused enough damage to become a risk during landing. They evaluated their film and largely wrote it off as probably it's okay and they they took a chance and they took a chance with seven lives and unfortunately those lives were lost. That's a very hard lesson for those engineers to learn. They took those losses very personally. And so I think as NASA moves forward, those reminders are constantly in their minds that they have a responsibility to the people they put on board to built the safest, best vehicle they can.
0: That was Dr. Amy Foster, and I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can also listen online at myfloridahistory.org or as a podcast. Check your local PBS schedule for our television series, Florida Frontiers, and watch archived episodes of that program at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.